Jones, Australia's leading voice. And thanks for your company here on ADH TV. I'm Fred Paul, filling in for Alan Jones. Alan had some commitments in Queensland, so he's up there. And it seems he took the wet weather with him. Central, southern and southeast Queensland are suffering a deluge right now. In some places, they were expecting twice the average July rainfall in a single day. Of course, we've seen all this before, and Alan himself has been saying it for years. Rather than listen to the Weather Bureau issue warnings about every time a large storm approaches, why can't we harvest this water and put it to good use instead? Well, we'll keep asking that question here on ADH TV and keep trying to inject some common sense into the, into the debates that matter to you, the hardworking and patriotic Australians who are so often overlooked by the mainstream media and politicians. It's easy to stream our content, just search ADH TV on your Apple TV App Store or Google Play Store, and you can install us on your television. Every show is available live and on demand. And if you prefer to listen to us on podcasts, you can do that as well. Every episode is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen. Now tonight on the show, we have two of the smartest, most articulate young commentators in the country. You won't want to miss what they have to say. From Melbourne, we have the very talented, articulate and comprehensively informed Daniel Wilde from the Institute of Public Affairs. He's got plenty to say about Victorian Liberal leader Matthew Guy, who has about as much chance of leading his team to victory in the state election in November as Melbourne caretaker coach Lee Adams has of hoisting the AFL Cup at the MCG in September. Matthew Guy has been to an election before and been defeated, yet his colleagues have reinstalled him. Isn't politics a funny business? It seems the less talent you have, the higher you climb. Guy committed the Victorian Coalition to adopt the Labor Green policy of legislating, yes, legislating, a 50% reduction in the state's emissions by 2030. So that just reinforces what we already knew, that there's no difference between Labor and Liberal. I'll also be joined in the Sydney studio by Alexandra Marshall from The Spectator Australia magazine. She's as sharp as a tack and always has plenty to say about the unbelievable hypocrisy of globalists and climate catastrophists. All right, let's get on with the show. Now you can excuse the Republican movement for being a little cocky these days. They have a proactive Republican Prime Minister in office who last month appointed the nation's first ever Assistant Minister for the Republic. Also this year, the Australian Republican movement released a proposed method for nominating and electing a president, which was the insurmountable obstacle the last time the nation debated and voted on this topic in 1999. Its polling has supposedly found that this model is supported by 73% of Australians. ARM Chair Peter Fitzsimons says, quote, The stars are aligning for an Australian Republic. We look forward to working with the federal government to ensure all Australians get a say about who represents them as head of state. We have the wind in our sails. The timing is perfect. We're on our way. Now, there are three aspects of the current arrangement that annoy the ARM, 
Our head of state is hereditary and doesn't live in Australia and therefore is not, quote, able to unify our nation in times of celebration or crisis. But whether they admit it or not, a republic is part of a much wider agenda. The republic will sever not only what remains of our constitutional ties to Britain, it will also sever cultural ones that until recently were fundamental to us. The Queen embodies many of these, such as civility, humour, public service, decorum, and of course, stability, all values drawn largely from our Christian heritage. Now, there's no reason to assume an Australian can't fill this role, but there are reasons to think that the Republican movement, as it stands, is not interested in that. What does the Republic represent, other than the desire for an elected Australian head of state who can unify us? You can scan the ARM's website for an answer, but you won't find one. But you will, if you look closely enough, find a correlation between Republicanism and leftist politics, you don't need to be a leftist to support a republic, but it seems that almost all leftists are republicans. Fitzsimons' politics are well known. His many emphatic opinions published in his newspaper columns routinely align with Labor policy. He ruthlessly vilified Israel Folau for his Christian beliefs and thinks men should be allowed to compete in women's sports if they think they're women. Are these the kind of ideas he hopes will be more acceptable under a republic? Under the Republican movement's model, the various parliaments around Australia would put forward a field of candidates for head of state and the people would elect their favourite. In a promotional video for the Republican movement released in January, Socceroo Craig Foster says in a soft, soothing voice that such a head of state would be one of the, quote, most eminent, trusted and beloved citizens who will then represent this, quote, beautifully diverse country at home and abroad. But there might be an inbuilt flaw in this. How can one person represent a country that's defined by its diversity? Can't that only happen in a society that is defined by uniformity? Foster changes his tone about Australia when he's not talking about the Republic. Turns out he doesn't like the place much, at least not the way it is now. He delivered a speech to the National Press Club for the Australian National University in March that he titled Australia and the World. The subtitle outlined the choice he believes the nation now needs to make. Quote, courage, solidarity, humanity and leadership or refugee torture, human rights abuse, xenophobia and climate inaction. That's quite a crossroads there, Craig. I'm not sure I fit into either of those camps, to be honest. In the speech, he said the Australian political system had collapsed under the existential challenges of the pandemic and climate disaster. Into this vacuum, he said, quote, community leaders have found new prominence many of them brilliant women speaking truth to power, and they have greater social trust than many politicians. Well, if that's how he feels, then Foster doesn't think very highly of our current constitution. Which brings me back to the Republican movement's proposed model. What would prevent a candidate for the head of state campaigning on, to use two of Foster's examples, 
the racism of Australia's border security and inaction on climate. Such a head of state, if elected, could claim a more direct mandate from the people than the indirectly elected Prime Minister. What happens then? Anyway, if, if this is why Foster is so determined to introduce a republic, he really needn't worry. The left's perfect candidate for our head of state is already the next in line. Republicans, I present to you the next King of Australia, a man with impeccable woke credentials and already a veteran of the international globalist circuit. If that bloke doesn't tick all the Republican boxes, nobody does. Well, as you know, each Thursday, Alan crosses to the impressive, articulate and extremely well-informed Daniel Wilde from the Institute of Public Affairs. But before we go to Daniel, I can't believe the political situation in Victoria. It's dire. Daniel Andrews, or Dictator Dan to most ordinary Victorians, looks likely to walk back in at the Victorian state election in November. This is despite the mess that Victorian Labor is in. Today, Victoria's anti-corruption watchdog released a report which detailed, quote, extensive misconduct by Victorian Labor MPs, including rampant nepotism, widespread misuse of public resources, and a culture of branch stacking dating back decades. The IBAC said, while the, while the identified misconduct was considered to be, quote, egregious, the watchdog was hampered by weak laws around parliamentary accountability. Oh, you mean to say a state which had the world's longest lockdown implemented by Dr. Dictator Dan has poor oversight and parliamentary accountability? You don't say. The Premier has apologised for what he has described as, quote, absolutely disgraceful behaviour by Labor MPs, also declaring his government would accept all 21 recommendations made in the report. These include the establishment of a parliamentary ethics committee and a parliamentary integrity commissioner and reform of parliament's privileges committee to reduce the dominance of the majority party. But despite all this, Labor are still winks odds to win the next election. The problem is there is virtually no policy differentiation between Labor and Liberal. Here's Matthew Guy, 48 years of age, and has only ever been around state politics. He ran in 2002, but was not elected. Then in 2006, he succeeded in being the top candidate for one of the Liberal tickets in the Victorian Upper House. By the way, you can't be on the top of an Upper House ticket in state politics without being highly factional. But here's Guy pledging to legislate a 50% reduction in the state's emissions by 2030, a Labor-Green policy. What the hell? Let's bring in Dan Wilde from the IPA to get his verdict. Dan, what is going on in Victoria? Well, Fred, great to be with you. And a great question, as you identify, the coalition here in Victoria has adopted the Labor-Green policy to legislate a 50% cut to emissions by 2030. Now, don't forget, that's going further than what the, uh, the Albanese Labor government wants to do, a 43% cut uh, to emissions by 2030. So this is going further to the left than the federal Labor government wants to do in this area. And there's a couple of key points I want to make here. The first is that Australia is in the middle of an energy crisis. We have a gas shortage. 
We've got a supply shortage. We've got skyrocketing prices because of wind and solar coming onto the grid when they cannot provide the baseload power we need. We've got six coal fire power stations closing down by the end of the decade, which is going to exacerbate this issue. Yet the Victorian coalition is promising to push more wind and more solar and get rid of more coal from the market at a time when we already have this great energy crisis. The second key point, and this is what you're touching on, Fred, is that there are millions of Victorians who now no longer feel they have a voice in politics because the coalition and Labor on many of the major issues facing Victoria's future and our nation's future have essentially the same policy, whether it's on climate, whether it was on lockdowns or mandates. Don't forget the Victorian Liberals supported Labor uh, for the majority of the lockdown period. And this has meant that there are many, many Victorians who are simply turning away from the major parties and are looking for alternatives. Well, you've correctly said, Daniel, of this decision, quote, Mr Guy's policy is yet another nail in the coffin for Victoria's once great manufacturing sector. Businesses such as the Alcoa aluminium smelter in Portland cannot continue to operate uh, long term if Victoria is powered by unreliable and experimental, experimental renewable energy. Daniel, how can, how can the Liberals claim to care about the rising cost of living if they make economy-destroying decisions like this? Well, it's a critical point. And the key issue here is really you can't have a manufacturing sector and a sovereign manufacturing capability without having 24-7 baseload power. As you know, you need reliable power and affordable power to have a manufacturing sector and to be able to have heavy industry of any Description Victoria, historically, going right back to Federation days, was a manufacturing powerhouse, uh, has been a leader in Australia over many decades with its manufacturing sector, but can no longer compete within Australia or internationally, in large part because of its high and growing electricity costs. As you mentioned, the aluminium smelter in Portland was actually asked to cease operations earlier this month by the energy operator because of supply shortages in the same way that the uh, smelter in the Hunter Valley, the Tamago smelter, was also asked to cease operations. And this gives us a glimpse into our future uh, of what Australia will be like under net zero and under policies like a 50% cut to emissions. The other point you identify is quite right. Uh, skyrocketing energy prices are fueling uh, increases to prices everywhere because energy is needed for the creation and production of practically every good and service that we use. So when energy prices go up, the price of everything else goes up. And that means that we're suffering in terms of higher grocery bills, cost of living and faster inflation, which is hitting working class and middle class Australians very hard. Well, Daniel, the West Australian Liberals pulled a trick like this prior to their state election last year. It included shutting down two state owned coal fired power stations by 2025. Does Matthew Guy know how that ended? Well, apparently not, Fred. And don't forget also South Australia under Stephen Marshall had a similar green zealotry as a part of their policy platform. Uh, they lost comprehensively at the last election in South Australia, despite having uh, only been there for one term. And also the other key point politically is we've had the federal election. That's the, that is a, a critical data point because don't forget the federal coalition adopted the policy of net zero emissions with the explicit intent of trying to win those inner city teal seats and they lost them anyway. 
So the point is that chasing this inner city green vote through radical climate policy has not proven to be the path to government or to success for the Liberal parties at the state or federal level, in addition, and more importantly, uh, to the fact that it is bad for our nation for all the reasons we've just discussed. Well, Daniel, if the Liberals are signed up to the climate alarmist agenda and are too scared to invest in coal-fired power stations, why don't they push for nuclear? Well, it's an important point, Fred. We know that the Australian people want nuclear. Uh, a polling that we discussed on the Alan Jones Show not long ago was over 50% of Australians want nuclear power, including a majority of those aged 18 to 24, because it can provide that baseload power that we need. Now, I think the debate is starting to open up a little bit. At least we've seen Peter Dutton and uh, the Nationals leader, David Littleproud, say that they're open to a debate on nuclear power. But we have a long way to go as a nation. As you know, that there is currently a ban in place at the federal level on the development of nuclear power in Australia, despite the fact that we have one third of the world's uranium deposits, despite the fact that we send that uranium overseas so other countries can use the uranium in their own nuclear facilities, it remains banned in Australia. But we're not going to have a choice. If we're outlawing coal, if we're making it hard to get gas onto the market, we know that wind and solar can't get the job on. We're going to have to go for nuclear power and it's becoming clearer by the day that the ban on nuclear must be repealed. Well, it makes sense, Daniel. Uh, you said we have a third of the world's uranium reserves. It's, pro it's probably around 40%. We should be exploiting that advantage to generate clean, reliable nuclear power. Daniel, how strong do you think the ideological opposition to nuclear power is? Well, it's reasonably strong among hardcore activists, but I think it's weakened over recent years for a couple of reasons. One is that countries like France, for example, 70% of their energy comes from nuclear, 20% in the UK, it's about the same in uh, the US and also in Canada. So it's proven to be a pretty safe, effective form of energy generation around the Western world. Now, the key point is that these are nations that have signed up to net zero as well. So one of the points that is often not made or is, is almost never made by those pushing net zero and referring to international examples is, well, those other nations that I just mentioned have a significant portion of their energy coming from nuclear as well, which we do not have. So the point is here that not using nuclear means that net zero is even more of a cost impost on Australians as compared to those other nations I just mentioned. But look, I'm hopeful that the debate is changing as prices continue to grow, as this energy supply crisis continues to spread across the nation. More and more Australians are saying we need nuclear and we need more coal. Daniel, we can't say it often enough. The funny thing is these lefties seem to conveniently forget that nuclear power is virtually emissions free. Even the Greens party in Finland supports it. France has it too. Bill Gates, who pens books about climate disaster, remember he, remember he said, quote, nuclear is ideal for dealing with climate change because it's the only carbon free, scalable energy source that's available 24 hours a day. Daniel, this is not to mention the commerce and decent paying jobs it would generate. When do you think those in Canberra will wake up to this? Well, I think they're going to wake up when those in the community dem demand it. You know, it's, it's the case that when people feel the pain of the rising prices and, as you mentioned before, the inflation and rising cost of living, they're going to be demanding alternatives and looking for uh, leadership. Uh, now, 
that leadership is not there, but I think it's going to come. I think it's going to be inevitable as we have to confront this crisis. And the critical point here is that under the Labor government, we know they want to legislate for over 80% of our energy to come from renewables. We're currently at about 25%. It is simply not possible for us to do that. Our system will break. And at that moment, uh, the Australian people will be demanding leadership for reliable baseload power. And I think that's when the moment for change will come. Daniel, very quickly, one last before you go. Given today's report by the anti-corruption watchdog into Andrews and Victorian Labor, do you think the Premier will lead Labor into the November election or could there be a leadership challenge? Well, it's it's a bit of a mugs game to speculate on on elections and political contests, but I, I reckon he'll probably stick it out. I think he'll stick it out till November because... He, as in Daniel Andrews, is a pretty shrewd political operator. Of course, from a policy perspective, he's been disastrous for Victorians. But in terms of his grasp of power over the Labor Party and the political system, he certainly hangs on. So, look, at the moment, it looks like he's going to hang on, but things can change very quickly. Well, as Tony Abbott says, Daniel, elections often come down to a choice between bad and worse. Thanks, Daniel, for your time. <laughs> That's Daniel Wild, the Deputy Executive Director at the Institute of Public Affairs. Thanks, Daniel. Now, former New Zealand Prime Minister Robert Muldoon once famously observed that migration from his country to Australia, quote, raised the IQ of both countries. Well, with all due respect to our cousins across the Tasman, the same migration would have exactly the opposite effect today. New Zealand used to be one of the best educated countries in the world. In 2017, the Economist Intelligence Unit ranked New Zealand as the third in the world in its Educating for the Future Index. It was also the highest English-speaking nation and the highest in the Asia-Pacific at the time. Then Jacinda Ardern became Prime Minister, and the country's education system, like a lot of things in New Zealand, started to disappear down the woke plug hole. The nation's school curriculum now lists managing self and relating to others as key competencies. And its list of principles includes such things as cultural diversity and something called learning to learn, whatever that means. The effects have been devastating for Kiwi kids. This week, the New Zealand National Party said a recent study had found two thirds of Kiwi students would fail basic literacy and numeracy standards. In other words, only a third of Kiwi students were passing the national curriculum. Party education spokeswoman Erica Stanford said, quote, Labor has no plan. Their only action has been to release a waffly strategy document which contained no details on how they would turn around falling standards. She's right. That strategy document doubles down, suggesting the system throws out all the old outcomes-focused curriculum with something more progression-focused, which, quote, provides a coherent overview of how knowledge and competencies grow and deepen over time and enable meaning-making and sophistication of understanding. Got that? All that sophisticated understanding isn't helping much. Education is simply one aspect of New Zealand's decline. Housing, one of the key policies that helped Ardern win the election in 2017, has gone from a calamity to an outright crisis under her watch. The number of applicants for state housing has quadrupled to 24,000 
and the cost of real estate adjusted for inflation increased 256% from 2000 to 2021, according to The Economist. The government has shifted the focus away from its failures by introducing a well-being budget, which includes vague concepts like mental health and a sense of connection to community in the place of boring old financial statistics. The country's on the verge of becoming a failed state, says Oliver Hartwich, the executive director of the New Zealand Initiative Think Tank. To be fair, Hartwich doesn't mean Afghanistan-level dysfunction, but something more like Central Europe, where economies are stagnant, education is going backwards, and people can't afford homes and suffer from a general economic malaise, which intensifies to hopelessness and crime in the poorest areas. Kiwis generally expect a bit more from life than that, which is why so many of them want to leave. One million of them, in fact, which accounts for no less than 20% of the country. Of those, 200,000 have already made definitive plans to do so. And most of them have Australia as their ideal destination. Luckily, this helps solve our skills shortage, which explains why Prime Minister Anthony Albanese was so eager to announce plans to make life easier for Kiwis in Australia after he met with Ardern this month. Essentially, we're poaching their best and brightest, as well as those who are hardworking enough to relocate for work. And that should confirm, as if there was ever any doubt in the matter, that Australia is the better place to live, at least for now. But wait, our new government seems like it wants to take us down the same road Ardern has taken New Zealand. At the Australia-New Zealand Leadership Forum in Sydney this month, our new treasurer, Jim Chalmers, said he was inspired by what's been happening across the Tasman. He said, quote, our new government has a lot to learn from New Zealand. Specifically, he wanted to discuss the country's, quote, well-being budget and how to, reshape, how to reshape the discussion around the economy and the budget in terms of measuring what matters. Well, those Kiwis packing their bags for Australia have already measured what matters, and it's not the woke nonsense Ardern is advocating. It would be a shame if they arrived here and found the place had become the same as the basket case from which they'd just fled. Now, one of the delusions of the modern left is that they speak truth to power, that they fearlessly call out greed, oppression and corruption wherever it exists. But in truth, they're actually useless idiots naively supporting the things they claim to despise. They support enforced vaccinations that enrich Big Pharma, an industry that has repeatedly been found guilty of some of the biggest crimes in corporate history. They think replacing capitalism with socialism will finally eliminate the scourge of self-interest from society, when socialism, in fact, has proved time and time again to be nothing but a deprived dystopia for all but the greediest and most brutal opportunists. They crave the serenity of nature where there are more trees and pristine beaches untouched by human activity so they can post an image of it, of it on Instagram from their phone made by child labourers in toxic Chinese factories. But most of all, they oppose the fossil fuel industry, which is digging up oil, gas and coal to be burnt in cars and factories belching out toxic carbon dioxide into the air and turning our planet into a sauna. In a minute, we will speak to Alexandra Marshall, 
the online editor of The Spectator Australia about this being even more hypocritical than any of us thought. But first, Alexandra has uncovered the big lie about the environmental friendliness of battery power, which is supposedly a key element of our transition to renewables, a transition our new Labor government is absolutely determined to implement. It turns out that digging up the rare earths for these batteries causes a lot more permanent damage than the carbon dioxide being pumped out of coal-fired power stations. Alexandra joins me from the ADH studios. Alexandra, thanks for coming on the show. It's an absolute pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. First, tell me about the so-called rare earths that these batteries need. Where are they coming from? So what many people don't realise is that we're actually experiencing a mining boom. So the idea of renewables energy being some kind of low intensity green economy is a complete fallacy. It takes a lot more mining intensive activities in order to produce the required minerals for renewables technologies. And what people don't realise is that a lot of these rare earths are actually sitting on the ocean floor. So they call this the blue economy. And it's basically code for ripping up the ocean floor to gather up these rare earths materials to make things like batteries and solar panels and wind turbines. And it's an extremely destructive process that they basically call it a scorched earth approach where it destroys and kills everything it touches as it goes and oddly leads to the acidification of the ocean, which is what they're trying to avoid with fossil fuels, allegedly. Well, you put it very well in your piece in The Spectator. You said, quote, far from loving the oceans, the production of e-cars is fueling the exploration and mining of previously protected waters. The damage is estimated to be huge, permanent, and result in the extinction of species. Alexandra, there was a United Nations conference about the oceans held in Portugal in June, which our new Environment Minister Tanya Plibersek attended, where the degradation of the ocean for rare earths was barely even mentioned. Why do you think that is? I don't think China wants to clue a lot of people into the fact that there are trillions of dollars worth of minerals sitting on the ocean floor, particularly around the Pacific area. They believe at the moment, as a best guess, that there's more value under the ocean than there is on every continent on Earth. So this is a fortune worth of mining resources. And so they're trying to quietly work out who's going to own what before they start alerting the public to what's going on. And I don't think the Teals voters would be very happy to find out that their lovely little EV cars are actually killing the ecosystem of the oceans. Well, let's bring it back to the mining companies, shall we? You say they are destroying environments while fooling environmentalists that they're actually clean and green. Can you explain how they do that? So in order to mine these rare earths, which they're sort of these little nodules of rare earth minerals on the ground under the seafloor where they sit along the volcanic cracks. And so they send these submersibles down there. They suck up all the silt and all the creatures that are there with it in order to extract these nodules. Unfortunately, that also dumps feet and many meters of silt back onto the ocean floor, which suffocates and kills whatever's around there. Now, these cold environments are also slow moving environments. They don't adapt very well to being buried. 
And they're concerned, especially people from Greenpeace and others who worked with ISL, which is the International Seabed Authority, sorry, ISA, they're concerned that it's actually going to kill the breeding grounds for the bottom of the food chain in the ocean, which will then work its way back up through destroying the larger animals and robbing the ocean of its food supply. So it's a very large problem and people have been hanging the lantern on this for a while. Even people who work for the, uh, the authorities have said this is like letting the wolf guard the sheep. It's not a good idea. But if it's happening at the bottom of the ocean, you can't see it. Is that why they're getting away with it? That's exactly right. If you destroy some kind of native environment on the earth, you've got a thousand protesters rock up and start gluing themselves to things. But if you do it under the ocean, in the middle of the Pacific, nobody can see anything. Well, as I said, Tanya Plibersek and the rest of the Labor front bench couldn't wait to regain their places at the climate love-ins that seem to happen at various luxurious resorts around the world on a weekly basis these days. But really, our elected politicians are just the proxies in this situation, I think. Who really pulls the strings here, Alexandra? Well, this is something that I'm trying to uh, show people about what's happening, because geopolitics is complicated and it's also deceptively simple. So if you look at what's happening in the Pacific, everyone's treating the Pacific Islands with some kind of paternalistic attitude, as if uh, you know they're an innocent, an innocent party, we have to throw money at them to stop them from sinking. That's not true. The Pacific Islands are sitting on a fortune worth of these mining resources. They're doing deals and memorandums with China to mine it. And we've got Albanese and Penny Wong trekking around being like, we'll stop mining, we'll cut all of our emissions by almost half, but, uh, and we won't mine anything, but you can go and mine and your resources will be worth more. And well, all these, glo all these globalists, they get away with this because they claim to be acting on behalf of us to save our planet. But Alexandria, isn't it true that the most significant effect of all this climate activism is that it makes the poor poorer? This has been my point all along. The countries who have the most wealth look after their environments the best because you have to have the time available and the resources to look after the environment, which poor people don't have. So when you make the West poorer, you're essentially, you're not making the developing world any richer. We haven't seen that happening. We're just seeing even more people becoming poor. And it will lead to, as we've seen in Sri Lanka, the complete collapse of government systems and starvation. These are delicate, fragile political systems. And if you start mucking around by scaling back farming or banning fertiliser, you end up with an absolute disaster. Well, speaking of political systems, it seems the United Nations is often the organisation behind all these programs that we're talking about. As you point out, the United Nations received $2.1 from various governments around the world last year, 65 million of which came from Australia. Alexandra, what are we getting for all that money? Well, I think last time I checked, we're paying for an awful lot of private jets and a lot of five-star accommodation. They had one of the worst bills of any government or uh, any bureaucracy authority there. But also, don't forget, the UN is in charge of moderating the seafloor, and they've actually come out and said that they're not there to protect the seafloor, they're there to uh, facilitate the mining of the seafloor. So you, I don't have much faith in them actually protecting our oceans and environments. And for Australia, that is so crucial to our entire ecosystem to make sure we've got healthy oceans. Alexandra, where do Australian mining companies fit into this? 
so you want, might be wondering why mining companies are going green. It doesn't sound like a good idea for people who mine oil, gas and coal. But the truth is they've got these huge other portfolios sitting there and by doing renewables first, they're able to sell a lot of their cheap, previously worthless minerals at a 600% markup. So they're getting the best value out of their mining portfolios and then they'll go back to coal, oil and gas because we need that. And when we're done with those, then they'll move on to uranium. They're basically selling through the whole catalogue. Sounds, sounds like quite a plan. Finally, Alexandra, there are suggestions from within the government that Australia should urgently repatriate the ISIS brides who were stuck in Syria and other less than pleasant places. Alexandra, why are these women there in the first place? What have they been doing there? And should we bring them home? Look, the Australian ran about half a dozen stories last weekend trying to soften people up to the idea of bringing, let's be frank, terrorists back to the country. We call them ISIS brides, but they are adults who decided to leave Australia to join a terrorist organisation to wage war on the West. And once they did that, they basically said goodbye to their citizenship and we have no inclination and no desire to bring them back. And the public apps were absolutely furious at the suggestion that they should be bringing back. And as for the children, as sad as it is to say, the, uh, a German uh, reporter went into these camps where our supposed Australian children are, and the children who were five and six were threatening to kill the female reporter because she wasn't Islamic. So I think on a, a, ba a risk balance, if you leave to join a terror group, that's it, you've made your bed. The Syrian desert's probably the right place for you. I think you're right, Alexandra. The decision to fight or even support a jihad overseas is not one you'd make lightly, I imagine. Surely having made that decision, you can't expect to be bailed out by the country you left behind is if it all went pear-shaped. Alexandra, thank you for your time. Thank you so much for having me. It was an absolute pleasure. That's Alexandra Marshall. You can read her excellent commentary on a wide range of topics at spectator.com.au. It was alleged on the weekend that Jill Biden gives her husband, United States President Joe Biden, some sort of pill to make him more coherent an hour before he speaks publicly. The allegation was made by conservative commentator Tucker Carlson last Friday, who said he had spoken to a witness who saw this medication being administered during the 2020 election campaign. It's curious that the media has ignored this rather frightening claim about the mental state of the president, but then it's not as if we didn't already know he was off and away with the pixies. Biden himself has provided plenty of evidence to suggest this allegation has some merit. We've known since before the election that Biden's cognitive capabilities tend to, to put it politely, fluctuate mysteriously. One day he's arguing passionately about his ability to stand up to Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin or negotiate a radical $1 trillion infrastructure bill through Congress. The next he's falling off his bike, babbling about, you know, the thing in the Declaration of Independence, sniffing kids' hair and reading his instructions out loud from an auto cue. So it's interesting now that Biden's inadequacies are so blatant that not even his most ardent supporters can deny them, to look back on the people who endorsed Biden for president back in 2020. How could these people have been so eager to support Biden and yet been so wrong? The three most prominent endorsers were former presidents Bill Clinton and Barack Obama and the late Secretary of State and Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Colin Powell. Selecting the most pertinent moments from their endorsements is difficult because almost everything they said has turned out to be 
inaccurate at best, and deliberately deceitful at worst. If there's any truth revealed in these statements of support, it's that the tribalism of modern politics and the craving for power prevail over the well-being of ordinary voters. Colin Powell started his endorsement by applauding Joe Biden's immaculately American character. The values I learned growing up in the South Bronx and serving in uniform were the same values that Joe Biden's parents instilled in him in Scranton, Pennsylvania. I support Joe Biden for the presidency of the United States because those values still define him and we need to restore those values to the White House. Bill Clinton said the choice Americans, American voters were facing was a stark one between good and evil. Our party is united in offering you a very different choice, a go-to-work president, a down-to-earth, get-the-job-done guy, a man with a mission to take responsibility, not shift the blame, concentrate, not distract, unite, not divide. Our choice is Joe Biden. Some choice, Bill. Joe's old boss, former President Barack Obama, when he wasn't speaking about himself, said... Because one thing everybody has learned by now is that the Republicans occupying the White House and running the U.S. Senate are not interested in progress. They're interested in power. <laughs> power! <laughs> as it turns out, Joe Biden has somewhat of an interest in power as well. So much so that when he was Obama's vice president from 2009 to 2017, he frequently sold access to his office to foreign officials, including from America's strategic adversary, China, according to widely published revelations from his son Hunter's laptop. But it wasn't just senior politicians who were bedazzled by Biden in 2020. Some Washington observers noted that Biden had changed when he ran for the presidency in 2020. The narcissist who previously sucked the oxygen out of any room he walked into had, since tragically losing his beloved son Beau to cancer in 2015, become quieter and more humble. They saw this as a sign that he was finally, after four decades of doing deals on Capitol Hill, qualified to be president. But more important than the qualities he brought to the office was the thing he wasn't. He wasn't Donald Trump. And for this, the media celebrated. In his inauguration speech, Biden said, referring to the previous four years under Trump, quote, let this grim era of demonization in America begin to end here and now. To which the New York Times commented with naive reverence, quote, that is probably a line that people will talk about long into the Biden presidency. Well, we're not even halfway into the Biden presidency and there is an even grimmer era of demonization among ordinary Americans, and it's aimed at Biden himself. Thanks to his enablement of inflation and skyrocketing fuel prices, Biden has gone from attracting the most voters in US history, which in hindsight now looks increasingly implausible, to some of the worst polling on record. 88% of Americans think he's got the country on the wrong track. Nice work, Joe. But again, you have to wonder, if Biden's inadequacies were obvious before 2020, why didn't the journalists and politicians who supported him see it too? 
And just before we go, you heard my comments earlier in relation to the New Zealand Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern. She's experienced a great political honeymoon over the past few years, not able to put a foot out of place. And being from the left, she has the protection racket that is the mainstream media. Anything she does or says, no matter how ridiculous or in policy terms, no matter how much of a failure it is, Ardern is never called out. But is her messianic complex fading? It's possible. The National Party's Christopher Luxon is getting some runs on the board as the nation's new opposition leader. Not that he's short of subject matter. Ardern's track record is littered with failures that have seriously diminished the quality of life in New Zealand. There's the failure of KiwiBuild, a so-called government scheme, which was meant to solve New Zealand's housing crisis by building 100,000 homes over a decade. It was scrapped after two years. There's also child poverty, an issue that Ardern was supposedly passionate about, but which has increased under her watch. I could go on. More amusingly though, the princess of the left is now being criticised by environmentalists over the gift she bought President Joe Biden during her recent visit to Washington. Ardern gave Biden a bowl made from glazed swamp cowrie timber that had been buried for 60,000 years. Well, that set alarm bells ringing across the Pacific. Fiona Forrell, the head of the Northland Environmental Protection Society, said Ardern's gift was, quote, appalling. She insisted that its presentation at the White House would harm the ecosystem. But how? Well, she explained that the attention now being given to this prehistoric timber means, quote, people will want more swamp cowrie. That's you she's talking about. Stop buying bowls made from ancient cowrie timber, you environmental philistines. Anyway, she said Biden should set an example and send the bowl back, a request to which the, the White House is yet to respond. Will this international incident become the modern equivalent of the Elgin marbles that the English stole from Greece 200 years ago? Or will Joe quietly return the bowl next time he bumps into Jacinda at some fancy high-level environmental conference in the near future? We can only hope. The sustainability of an entire New Zealand ecosystem depends on it. Well, that's all from me tonight. It was great to fill in for Alan Jones while he was away. I look forward to seeing you all on August 1 for The Fred Paul Show, which will air every Monday to Thursday at 9pm. Have a good weekend. Good night.